Being Reasonable comes to you from the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina. I'm Mark Solomon, and you are taking part in Being Reasonable, the weekly conversation show that focuses on how we've arrived on our steadfast views and our desire to know what is true. To participate in this friendly collaboration, all you need is respectfulness and an honest interest in the truth. We can all improve the way we form and consider our beliefs. And we can do so by being reasonable. One, two. On this week's show, we speak with Teshin from the North Carolina Zen Center. Teshin discusses his belief in the teaching and practice of Zen Buddhism. So let's speak with Teshin from the North Carolina Zen Center. So last person I talked to about Zen Buddhism, where we had some confusion, mm-hmm. and it was, a, it was a very nice conversation, wonderful conversation, but where we struggled, it was totally on me, was she was coming from an Eastern perspective, an Eastern mindset of way of seeing things, and I am trying to interpret it through my Western lens. And I totally get it. Just like it's difficult for me to just say, okay, I'm going to drop my Western lens and now I'm going to pick up this Eastern lens and kind of see how you see things. That's just impossible to do for someone who's grown up in the West. And sure. But that's where we just had some difficulty understanding where each other were coming from. Hmm. And it it was a great conversation, but there was maybe a little bit of lack of clarity. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense to me because rather than East and West, although that dichotomy is true, you could say more of a, a intellectual versus or rational or head-centered way of understanding versus more intuitive, direct. Say it again, intuitive versus what? So, so rather than thinking of in terms of an Eastern versus Western perspective, I would say, you know, part of the struggle that anybody has in approaching Zen Buddhism is we come at it wanting to understand it intellectually to sort of get a handle on it. But Zen speaks to more of the intuitive side of us, and it doesn't really indulge too much in intellectual understanding. And so... What's the difference between intellectual understanding and intuitive understanding? As sure. You- well, one thing is that in Zen, we put a heavy emphasis on direct experience. Okay. So it would be as if the difference between if, let's say, that you had never had pizza before, and I were to say to you, you said, well, what is pizza, Tashin? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, have you had bread? Yeah. Okay. Have you had spaghetti sauce? Yeah. Okay. Have you had cheese? Yeah. Okay. Now put all that together, bake it in an oven, and you can sort of approximate what a pizza tastes like. Okay. That would be an intellectual explanation of pizza. But there's no substitute for actually biting into a piece of pizza. So the difference between an intellectual understanding and a direct experience is we experience it directly rather than just talking about it or thinking about it. So in Zen, we put... So it's knowing things firsthand versus thirdhand. Yes. That's a simple way of, of, of putting it. And in that way, you know, Zen is a path, a practice rather than a set of beliefs. And so... One can only really know what Zen is through the practice of Zen, if that makes sense. What would you say is the fundamental difference between Zen Buddhism and atheism? Well, I don't know much about atheism. Um, Well, atheism just as defined as a lack of belief in a deity. Yeah, sure. In Buddhism, as well as Zen, we don't have a God concept. So there is no so-called higher power. So that would have, there'd be a commonality between atheism and Zen. So there's no God or deity That's right. in Zen Buddhism. In Buddhism at all. In fact, you know, this is an important point that to mention is that it's not even an ism, really. Buddhism was a term that was invented by Western scholars 
but it wasn't used previous to Western scholars sort of discovering, quote unquote, Buddhism in India. So when they went to India and saw, archaeologists saw this sort of path based around the teachings of the Buddha, they called it Buddhism, turned it into an ism. But it really, originally was called the Dharma. So was Buddha a god? No. No. He was just an ordinary guy who began the path, began teaching after his own personal experience of what we call awakening or enlightenment. We don't use that word too much because it can be really misunderstood. But regardless, he had, he had his own journey, which is a whole story in itself. But after, after um, he had his awakening experience, he began to teach his experience and people began to listen and follow. But he's just a guy. In fact, that was, was often asked, are you a, you know, he would be asked, are you a god? What are, like, you, you seem different, you know? Are you a deity? Are you a god? Or, and he said, no, I am awake. And that's what Buddha means. It means awake in Sanskrit. So it's not. So if there is an objective in Zen Buddhism or a path, it's towards wakefulness or enlightenment. Not necessarily that can be obtained, but it is the journey there. Yes, it's, it's both. It's, it's the journey there. It's a path. So it's, it's ongoing and unfolding, meaning that it, it, it really doesn't have a beginning or an end. That's one difficulty that Westerners have, that people new to Zen practice have, is understanding that it's not goal-oriented. It's not like we're yeah. going to get there and we're going to be yeah. happily live happily ever after. Sure. But it is a it is a path. It's an ongoing practice, and um, the path involves waking up more and more. When someone is more awake, uh-huh. what does that mean? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, there's two ways of looking at it. Um, awakening is used in, in, in modern terminology in different ways. I've heard it lots of, used lots of ways in different Buddhist traditions too. In Zen, we, we believe that awakening really is about realizing for ourselves that we are fundamentally not separate from everything else. I think that would seem to align with just the simple overarching concept in physics that Everything is connected. Everything is a cause and effect. Atoms that make up you and me are not fundamentally too much different than atoms that make up trees. Yeah. I get that, that we're all part of the same soup. Yes, yes. So the, so in Zen, you know, it's not, it's not hard to sort of, especially like as you say with today's scientific understanding, to get there intellectually. Mm-hmm. Okay. It doesn't take much of a leap. The difference in just understanding intellectually and experientially is that when we understand it just intellectually, it doesn't necessarily make make much of a difference in our life. In other words, most of us can hear that things like, "Yeah, I'm one with the universe, and we're all part of we're all made of stardust and all these kind of nice things. But at the end of the day, we still experience ourselves mainly as isolated individuals who sort of feel hyper alone in, in a lot of ways. Like we have our private thoughts, we have our uh, struggles with anxiety, we have our struggles with how did I find myself here? So the self is more of an artifice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, well, the self, is, it's the experience of this self is genuine. I mean, nobody could deny that you experience yourself as an individual mm-hmm. self. And we don't deny that in mm-hmm. Zen. But we say that to have something to add to that, we have an experience of something greater than this individual self, something uh, more connective. And um, when we experience that, again, going back to the pizza analogy, when we actually bite into that, we see it, we, we realize that it, it um, is fundamentally relieving in a way. When we're talking about issues of truth, Presumably, when you're practicing Zen Buddhism, you're getting to some sort of universal truth, something that's real, something that says something about us. What is it about learning things experientially as opposed to intellectually that gets us to that concept? It would be no different than taking up any path of learning. For example, I was a carpenter for many years before working as a Zen priest and therapist. As I was learning carpentry, of course, I would read books and, and think through problems and, yeah. 
and and yet at the uh, it was it was a world of difference between that and actually swinging a hammer, actually learning how to use my hands, actually learning how to handle tools and put things together. Well, using your example, yeah. What if they gave you tools and a hammer and you started doing things and you didn't have the first part? Yeah, that's a that's a uh, a big problem mainly for westerners so so for example if you went to japan and wanted to learn about zen you would simply be put let's say uh you would simply be shown into the monastery the zen temple and you would just sit and you would learn through just absorbing what other people are doing by having conversations with your teacher but by doing you would learn through doing we as westerners usually need more than that uh, we usually want to have a sort of a, a real baseline sort of direction. Like, let me sort of get all the my ducks in a row first, and then I'll begin to practice. So that's why we hold things like introductory workshops and classes and more explanatory kind of things. But is it just as likely if you are learning things experientially, say from other people, that you're learning something false from somebody who learned something false, who learned something false from that person. And we're not getting to anything that's true and real. We're just passing down these lenses of experiential knowing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, again, going back to the carpentry analogy, if your mentor teaches you experientially how to, say, build a house and your house comes out crooked, you'll learn experientially, actually, that it that what you learn doesn't make sense. The Buddha said, don't believe anything I teach you just out of respect for me, but test that in the fire of your own experience. And if it works, keep doing it. And if it doesn't work, give it up. In Zen, um, the practice is designed to help you feel, to experience life in a more holistic way, uh, more peace, hopefully more equanimity, hopefully, uh, more groundedness, centeredness, presence. Um, if that's not working, uh, it's up to the student, the Zen practitioner, to then say, well, this isn't working for me. And I would never say you're doing it wrong or yeah. you know, that there's something wrong with the student. It's what's right for the person. So that has to be through their own... Well, let me put the example this way then. Yeah, yeah. I think it's commonly accepted that the Earth circles around the sun... But experientially, it doesn't seem that way, and it hasn't seemed that way for generations and generations of humans. And I'm not sure how one would know that experientially. So is there a flaw in experiential knowing, or is it just one way of knowing things? It's certainly one way of knowing things. It's not, it's not necessarily the, the whole of the path in, in terms of, in terms of uh, Buddhism. Uh, it's primary, but certainly we value refining our understanding and being challenged in our understanding. And Buddhism is very much like science. As evidence comes to light, we take that in and change uh, and adapt. One thing I admire about Buddhist, Buddhism and Buddhist practice is as it's uh, traveled from country to country, from society to society through time, it's adapted and changed. It, it, it lets go of sort of more cultural type of uh, expressions of the practice and, and and says, okay, recognizes these are just cultural, uh, these are not fundamental to what uh, the Buddha taught. We don't have, a, say, a, like a central book uh, mm -hmm. that says, no, this is the truth. In fact, there's a very interesting story of a very short story about a conference that was held in Japan many, many, many years ago. Um, it was sort of an interreligious dialogue and different people of different faiths were put on stage, so to speak. And the moderator said, well, what would happen if tomorrow you found out your, your book was a fake? Different people said different things. It would be devastating and we'd have to really rethink things. And, but the, the Zen Buddhist teacher said um, it wouldn't matter at all because our beliefs are not out there. They're, they come from in here meaning inside of us. That's what's most fundamental. So um, when you say beliefs that come inside us, to me, I interpret that as that these are subjective truths and not yes. universal. Yes, totally. Sub everything, actually, that's a good point, is everything is subjective. Everything is subjective. There is no objective truth. So everything is true. 
Well, it, again, you, what you're doing is getting into a dichotomy, true versus false. False for, you know, true versus false. Well, maybe we could use an example. Yeah, sure. So, for example, we have chickens in our backyard, uh-huh. and there are an even or odd number of chickens. There is a universal truth there. I might not know it. You might not know it, but there is an answer. And does our subjective experience of chickens have anything to do with whether there is an even or odd number of chickens? Well, yeah, because you're, what you're doing is you're saying, I, this is how many chickens I see or can find. Uh, but who knows? There may be a chicken that you haven't accounted for. Uh, this is very close to, this is very, um, it reminds me of. But if there's a chicken that I haven't accounted for, yeah. wouldn't that mean that we both haven't accounted for it? Uh, I'm not following you, that we haven't both accounted for it. Well, if there's a missing chicken, then I assume that there'd be a missing chicken for both of us. And still there'd be an answer that we could arrive to. Yeah, we might, we might discover that chicken later, later that day or later that evening. Um, and we would just adjust for that. There would be no... So, so, so there would be a universal truth there that would still be true for both of us. Well, again, what Zen says is that um, we can theorize about a universal truth, There is, but without uh, somebody knowing, uh, that's, that's an abstract concept. In other words, um, uh, knowing can't exist without a knower. There's no... There's no objective truth outside of somebody that is uh, knowing. So, so you, are you saying that there are an even an odd number of chickens, and if we didn't exist, that there just wouldn't be an answer to that question? Yeah, it's very. You're a science guy. It sounds like um, you've heard of Schrodinger's cat, mm-hmm. you know, which is a famous physicist problem, physics problem, where the uh, in quantum physics where. I, I'm not an expert on physics, so I may get this wrong. But uh, I guess the theoretical problem is that there's a cat inside a box, mm-hmm. and um, there's some sort of cyanide pill inside that box. And if you uh, open the lid to the box to see if the cat's alive or dead, or it, it, uh, it, the cyanide will kill the cat instantly, and something like that. And the question is, is the cat alive or dead before you open the box? You can't know that and without somebody seeing it. You can't know something without it being observed or being looked at. So you're saying that if we didn't exist, there wouldn't be an answer to that chicken question. That's right. That's right. Yes. Right. Because an answer implies somebody or something that an answer is actually a human construct. Truth is a human construct. Is even an odd a human construct? Is math a human construct? Yes. Math is a human construct. Yes. Yes. It does. There is no such thing as math outside of the human mind. You can't. If humans didn't exist, you're saying that plant. You're saying that planets wouldn't circle around. That there would be stars. That there wouldn't be gravity, that there wouldn't be sure. functions of the universe. I, well, I actually, I wouldn't know because if I wasn't here to observe it, I, I would have no idea. If humans, just in general. Yeah, if, if um, but what you're asking me is, um, would, would I know, um, or would planets still uh, circle the sun and would sun still circle in its, whatever it's doing? Would that still happen if, uh, if, if all of us weren't here? How would I know? How would I know? Because I'm not here to observe it. So I, why I does can't it requiring, know that. Why does that require you to be here or not be here? Because to know something means to, to observe it. You may not know it, yeah. but I want to know what's true. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I just don't know. I just don't know. And so this why, is actually, take this position, is, why take that position that if I'm not here, then this doesn't exist? Why... A priori, it would seem that the default position would be, if I'm not here, this all continues to go on. Yeah, uh, you know, you know, just to reorient us, um, the the honest truth is I don't know, because I've never experienced that. Um, okay. And Zen, that's where we get back to Zen. Zen doesn't um, value too much philosophical speculation about things like this because, um, in the end, we don't know. Uh, but this seems like a really central question yeah. because this really gets to the nature of reality. If reality occurs inside our head, 
something inside me or if reality occurs outside of my head and I'm just interpreting whatever that reality is. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like you're saying that reality is inside our head and we can interpret it pretty much in any way we desire. Well, um, I, I think that really what we're talking about is whether this this notion of inside versus outside, this, this goes to the fundamental experience of what Zen awakening, awakening is, is to see beyond duality of inside, outside, truth versus non-truth, that all these dualities that we sort of get caught in actually cause a lot of our suffering. Uh, um, so, but if there is no duality, and I get that, mm -hmm. then there would be no fundamental difference between inside, outside. And yes. that would imply a universal truth, I think, as opposed to individual subjective truths, no? Yeah, in Zen, we would say there's really no difference between those two. The absolute, as we talk about it in Zen, and the relative, the absolute you could say is the sort of universal and the relative is my individual experience of that is um, experience of the world is in fundamentally not two different things. They're not two different things. It's when we start splitting off and saying uh, there's that out there and there's this in here. That's what the Buddha recognized as why we suffer because we experience ourselves as separate from the world. We experience these things as separate and therefore um, grasp onto things, notions like truth. We go after things like, I want to know what the truth is. And then in that process, we create suffering for ourselves. Well, maybe instead of using the word true, just we could substitute the word real. Yeah. Again, um, real, real um, is what's real for you is, is certainly what's is different from what's real for me. Um, so everything is true. Because I could say what's real for me is that there's five-foot chickens roaming around my yard, and that's real for me, and yes. you're not seeing it, and that's not real for you. Right. But yeah, everything is real. Yeah, I, I, if, if some, again, this is the relative, that's the, from the relative side of things that there's, um, or the subjective side of things, sure, yeah. Um, we're not interested. See, this is the thing that I want to sort of get us out of in this conversation, if I'm allowed to, is that yeah. Zen isn't interested in. This is something that concerns you. Yeah, it's not. It's not a part of. We're not. We're not after some sort of philosophical truth or reality. Right. What we're interested in is relieving people's sense of suffering and pain in the world, and how best do we do that. So the Buddha never so made any relief pain and suffering, and I think I get this, by means that have nothing to do with reality, nothing to do yes. whether it is true. That's right. And if I believe that there are stacks of gold bullion in my closet, and I've never checked, but I believe it, right. and it makes me feel good, yeah. then I'm on the path. If, if, well, I, I don't know if that would be on the Buddhist path, but, you know, if, it, it, rather than on the path, you'd, if, if that's not a problem for you, then who am I to sort of intervene and say, you know, if, if you're not causing harm to others, if you're not causing harm to yourself, um, who am I to say that that's uh, something you shouldn't believe in? I, you know, again, the, the Buddha didn't, never made any philosophical claims about the universe, he simply said, I teach two things. I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Uh, so he said, if you want to learn about how to relieve suffering, then I have something to say, basically. And here's the path to follow as I've discovered it. He didn't say this is the only way. He didn't say that this is the right way. He just said, this is, this is the practice that I've discovered. And again, try it. And if it works for you, fine. So, so if I were to ask you yeah. on a scale let's say from one to seven, how important is truth to you? Yeah. You would be pretty low on that scale? Well, I don't spend my um, days um, contemplating truth. In, in It's just not something you think about. Uh, not so much. I'm, I'm in the business of, of doing what I can to 
share with people how to um, center themselves, ground themselves, to become more present with their the people in their lives, and to become more um, available, both emotionally, uh, uh, physically, and mentally. Well, this is, I mean, an important question, and yeah, and it gets to a premise of the show. Personally speaking, truth is important to me. If it's mm -hmm. true, I want to know it and I yeah. want to believe it or think it. Yeah. If it's not true, I'd rather not spend my time on it. And that's a personal preference. And I can see arguments where that is helpful to humankind in the sense that if we are all walking around with our own belief systems that are wildly different and at times even diametrically opposed to each other, one could see how that could get us into trouble. Yeah, yeah. But I think you're saying is that as long as the belief system is useful, it's not harmful, Yes. that we're all good. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are, to me anyway, there are cases where belief systems um, do cause harm. There's even in this um, in this country in this modern day, there are many many people that deny basic science. That uh, but it sounds like to be a Zen Buddhist, you could deny basic science and be just fine with that because that's just a belief that you're interpreting. As as again, as the the where it, Buddhism you know in Zen Buddhism, it comes from the Mahayana tradition, which and part of the Mahayana tradition is. Uh, we have this ideal called the bodhisattva. And the bodhisattva is uh, a, a person or a being who um, postpone their own full enlightenment to, to help others. So they're, um, it's an ideal. It's not meant to be taken literally as, but it's, uh, we believe that helping others is fundamental. Actually, it's, it's actually at the core of what human beings are we're, we're meant to take care of others. And so when we have beliefs or when we enact beliefs through our actions that are harmful to other people, um, for example, denying science and then perhaps crafting policies that end up harming other people, then we would have a problem with that. That's not to say that we don't get more information as we develop, you know, as science develops it. But the beautiful thing about science, as going back to an earlier part of our conversation today, Mark, is it's very similar to Buddhism, is that it has no problem with revising its own uh, stance as more information comes to light. And I think that's uh, the, the most uh, fundamental similarity between Buddhist practice and modern science. One of the fundamental aspects of science, as I understand it, is that science has a way of checking itself. Yes. That if you are on the wrong path, so to speak, and that path is incorrect, yeah. there are ways built into the system to discover that that's incorrect. In your practice, what ways are built in for you to discover that if what you are practicing is incorrect, that it that you could discover that. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in the Zen in the Zen tradition, we have we put a, uh, an importance on the teacher student relationship. So having guides or mentors that can uh, share their experience with us uh, and to help sort of correct or to um, at least question, if not correct, but at least question, help us question where we uh, where we find ourselves, our beliefs, our practices, it's because we recognize that it, you know Zen is kind of an apprenticeship model in a lot of ways. It's so easy to sort of take a practice like Zen and just read about it and then um, take it up and believe that we're doing it uh, in a way that's going to be helpful. But as we know, we have infinite ways of fooling ourselves. In and well, right. So with the apprent with the apprentice model, I could see getting at aspects that are closer and closer to what is helpful. Right. Where I see science getting at closer and closer to what is true. Yeah, they're not they're not they're not absolute equivalents. Um again, the you know, um 
science is science and Zen practice is Zen practice. They're not equivalents. What they have in common, I think, is that questioning, is that questioning, that that sort of um, desire to to ask, is this is this working? Is this is this in Zen's case, is this helpful? Is this working? Is this um, uh, uh, helping? And um, and so it revises based on that. And um, I think science does the same kind of thing in a different way, different objective, perhaps. But it, but it's not afraid to revise its hypotheses and to test those. And so Buddhism yeah. does the same thing. And I apologize for my Western mind here, but um, <laughs> well, that's the only mind you have, so. right? But a confusing aspect, maybe, of Buddhism is that if it's not working, that it can be revised, and then that is Buddhism. And if that's not working, then that can be revised or changed. Yeah. Then that is Buddhism. Yeah. And it seems to me that it's not disconfirming in the sense that, well, whatever I want it to be, it is. And whatever I don't want it to be, that it's that too. And then that can apply to future things and that can apply to things that have happened in the past. And so if it's something that's so murky, it's just everything and nothing. Mm -hmm. Am I wrong? Well, there are certain um, core principles of Buddhism that I think no matter how the container looks, uh, would would be pretty fundamental to what we would call the Dharma. Um, the Buddha recognized that all things are impermanent. There is no fixed uh, uh, thing. Uh, even the most solid of things we know changes. Uh, okay, so if you were to if you were to encounter in your life with good evidence this thing. This entity, object, whatever, with good evidence, sufficient evidence for you that this thing exists, has existed this way, has always existed this way, and it will exist this way in the future, then you wouldn't practice Buddhism. Well, it, it, it would, I would just uh, incorporate that into my understanding. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah, sure. Of course. Yes. Otherwise, I would be foolish. Because you're saying a central tenet of Buddhism is that things are always changing, but then if that wasn't the case, you still practice Buddhism, but you would just change that tenet. That would be what I would do. You know, the Buddha talked about this analogy. I'm sure you've heard it, Mark, uh, the analogy of the elephant, which is quite common these days. But it's he said, imagine five blind yeah. people that approach an elephant, and each one of them uh, touches a different part of the elephant and comes to know what that elephant is through their experience. And one touches the leg and thinks it's a pillar. One touches the trunk and thinks the elephant's a snake. One touches the ear and thinks it's yeah, a palm leaf. right. And so the Buddha said that that's um, akin to the way we uh, understand the world, that we don't claim to have a full understanding of it, but each one of us has a piece of it. Yes, we might not have a full understanding of it. But there is a universal truth that there is an elephant. There, there is an elephant. Uh, the goal is to get as um, you know close to that as possible. But uh, again, in Zen terms, is why are we doing this? It's not in in just why a, are we touching the elephant? Why are we trying to understand the elephant? Why? The, in Zen terms, in, um, it's to uh, to again relieve suffering. To, to become more peaceful in our own life, or however you might say it. Uh, but it's not to just simply do it philosophically. Um, we don't have... That might be of interest personally to some people, and that's there's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of a Buddhist path, the, the part of the reason that uh, we um, do suffer is because we pursue things uh, that are sort of... Um, working against our own personal freedom. And so um, one of those ways in Zen that we recognize, in fact, um, this, is, this is, goes back to the Buddha time, Buddha's time himself. Um, the Buddha's cousin, Ananda, was highly intellectual. And um, we're told, again, this is all speculation, but we're told he was very highly intellectual. And um, 
in fact, he had, he was, the reason we know the Buddhist discourses is because he remembered, it was an oral tradition at that time, you understand. And so he, he remembered all of what the Buddha taught. And so that's why we understand it, uh, what we do. Uh, but because of that intellectual understanding, um, he had a hard time actually practicing and waking up, having an awakening experience because his intellect, um, as powerful and helpful as it is, was uh, at some point got in his own way because it kind of tripped him up. And so it, Zen is not anti-intellectual, but it does recognize the limits of the intellect. It says, well, the intellect is fine when it's applied in certain areas of life, like you say, calculating the path of planets or making financial decisions that are important for ourselves or other people. That's important to employ the intellect. But when it comes to relieving our own suffering and uh, finding happiness, sometimes the actual in the intellect actually gets in the way. Not all the time, but oftentimes it actually becomes a barrier to our own happiness. Let me ask you this question to help me understand. If we're sitting out here on this deck and we're talking, and hopefully this doesn't happen, but <laughs> I all of a sudden pass away. I really hope that doesn't happen, but me too. it could. Me too. If that happened to me, would you go along existing or would you not exist anymore? You mean the person that passed away? You mean... Would you go along existing? Would you exist in this world after I pass? I'm not sure I understand your question. Would I... Would I continue? Would I get up off out of this chair and eventually move on with my life? Yeah. Would you just go along living your life? Would you live after I died? As far as I know, I would. I, it hasn't happened yet, but I assume I, I'm assuming I would. I don't see why I wouldn't. I'm not. I'm not sure. Help me understand your question. Well, if everything is tied to the experience, and I no longer experienced you. It's impossible for me to experience you because I've yeah. died. Yeah. But you go on. Wouldn't that suggest that subjective realities are irrelevant to what is true? That makes sense? I can try to rephrase that. Yeah, that would be helpful. I think you're telling me that everything is tied to the experience. In my example, I'm hopefully demonstrating how the experience could be seen as irrelevant. Irrelevant. Right. Because you go along experiencing reality regardless to what happens to my reality. That's, yeah. That, okay, I, I get you. So, so here's my answer. Um, I, would, I, would, I would say that I wouldn't simply go on without my experience changing because of your passing away. My experience would fundamentally change, uh, or maybe not fundamentally, but it would certainly be altered by, and we, we in Buddhism recognize that everything we experience changes our reality. But what I'm, my example hopefully gets to the idea of like math and the planets moving around, that whether I lived or not, if I passed away, those planets would continue to circle. Sure. Yes. And if you passed away, uh -huh. math would still work and those planets would still exist. But yeah, sure. I, I think you're telling me that, that that math happens inside our head, that it wouldn't happen. Um, math, math is a human construct. It's, it's an idea. It, it describes, it's a way of describing reality. It's a way of, it's a language it doesn't it work whether we yes. can describe it or not? Yes. It's but that's not math. That's the so that's not math. So when I say, for example, um, I love my wife, that's a description of an experience. It, it's a very limited description because what you have in mind and what I have in mind in terms of what love means is different. But the so math is is a language that describes uh, the way the planets work or the way uh, uh, apple drops from a tree and, you know, uh, it, it's a description, but it's not the thing itself. And that's fundamental to Zen is knowing that 
language is important. Languages like math or languages like uh, any kind of language, any kind of description can be important. But where we get into trouble in Zen terms is believing that the language is the thing itself. So what is math describing? Well, it's describing, like I said, it's just, and I'm not a mathematician, so mm -hmm. I'm, I want everybody listening to this to understand I'm not trying to speak outside of my knowledge base. Yeah. Math is, is describing events that we see and experience, and um, it describes weight, it describes um, other concepts like that, um, dimensions, um, uh, movement. And so math is descriptions of other objects and movements. Yeah. Are those objects and movements governed by math? No. 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 Not, not, not the way I see it. Math is a simply a description. It's a, it's, a, it's a shorthand. It's shorthand for what we experience or what, what we can predict we will experience. But it's, um, it's shorthand. It's not, it's, it's not the thing itself. That math is a, simply a word. Math. That's a word. It's a concept. It doesn't... What if I said that math is the thing itself? Sure. I mean, certainly math has its own integrity. I mean, if I'm doing a math problem... What but... if I just said... I'm not saying this is the case, but what if I just said it's, it's just all math? It's just math is the fundamental root. It's not the language. It is the thing. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have an okay. opinion about that, unfortunately. I'm just Again, to, I don't, I'm, I'm not, really I'm, trying to understand how, I'm not, and this, I'm not trying to, this is, <laughs> I'm really not trying to uh, argue with you. I'm I really, I'm not. I'm really trying to understand how you see things. Uh -huh. And um, it's my limited brain. My, uh, I apologize. Well, well <laughs> if you're trying to understand Zen, why we're talking, practice in Zen, um, belief is that these things, concepts like math or the way we describe things have value, and, uh, but they're not the whole picture. And, and so just like the elephant, it's not the whole picture. And so we want to recognize the limitations of things like that. Certainly math, knowing math, again, does not describe the human heart. It doesn't get at the longing that we feel or the anxiety we feel. It doesn't get at the bond between mother and child and things like that. And so- And I'm not saying that's easily discoverable, yes. but those aspects of the world are not governed by math or physics. That's just a different, that's governed by a different system, you're telling me. Well, I don't know if, I, I don't know that it's useful to try to find that system. I'm not saying it's discoverable, but I'm trying to understand that is that just functioning off of different rules or does that still fall in the realm of functioning within the scope of physics and math and how we understand things to function? Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, it's part of what science has done is, is, is go down the, the path of reductionism. It tries to get a handle on everything it can. To, it tries to reduce things to its most basic parts so that it can understand things. And, and I'm not trying to reduce. What I'm saying is, is that it might not be reducible right. in that sense, but is it still functioning under the same rules as other experiences or objects? Or is it something, is it a different sauce? Is it a different animal that just... Math and science and physics just, it'll never be able to get there because it just doesn't have whatever that structure is needed. Yeah, yeah. There is a limit to, as my opinion is that there's a limit to um, some uh, limit to language, languages, understand, uh, models like math and science. There are limits to that. Um, I don't know what those limits are, but um, there are limits. And, um, and those, what I what I mean by that is that right now there are limits. Like we can't know certain things. Will we in the future? I'm sure we keep pushing back the boundaries of what we know. Uh, what, uh, what 20 years ago was not knowable in a lot of cases is knowable now. But we have to acknowledge that it's a sort of a progression or a discovery process that's happening. 
and uh, so we just we acknowledge that um, that there's limits to what we can know now. You couldn't have invented a car in ancient Egypt because not because um, the there was not the fundamental languages or the fundamental knowledge wasn't there, but you you just didn't have the preceding steps that were met. So you needed you needed to know how to. Uh, you know, all the basics go into car designing and even thinking that a car is possible was not possible in ancient Egypt. Yes. And to use your example, in ancient Egypt, people probably couldn't even begin to imagine the concept of a car. That's that's what I mean. Couldn't even put their head around it. Yes. Now cars exist. But the thing about cars is that cars still function in a cause and effect universe. And there's physics that can explain how cars work. And so that's still inside the notion of how the universe works and what is true from a universal mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the, the difference the f- is, is what you're telling me is that you have a way of knowing that is outside that. I, I'm not making any claims about, you know. Well, I, that is outside math and science and a way of knowing that is what is possible in the sense of being able to build a car. Yeah, it's not outside of it. It's just, it, it includes it. It's just uh, uh, not, it's, it, nothing is outside. There is no inside or outside, so to speak. There is, there's nothing that is outside Again, this is where we kind of go down these rabbit holes of of dichotomy, which are pretty unhelpful uh, in terms of Zen practice, because we get tripped up with right and wrong, truth and non-truth, and things like that. And what we're trying to do is show our students, show Zen practitioners, have them experience for themselves something that is not subject to inside or outside. And I do think I follow you in the sense that, and please tell me if this is not what you're saying, but we can discuss things as being simultaneously helpful and unhelpful, and we can simultaneously discuss things as being true and not true, and we can discuss things as simultaneously being, you name it. Yeah. And I think I understand that concept. To me, in the end... I'm asking whether that just creates a great number of distinctions with no differences, right? A great number of distinctions. A great number of distinctions with no differences. In other words, we can describe how certain things are distinct from this thing and certain things are distinct from that thing, but there's really no difference between things. And so it kind of shuts down the conversation, right? Not in terms of Zen practice, it doesn't. Um, the, the job of a Zen student is to, to simultaneously see and understand the universal, the non-distinctive, or the, the world of non-distinction, but not in that, in that um, process, not abandon distinctions, not abandon individuality, relativity, this is a very hard thing to understand. Within the universal, within the absolute, is the relative. That within the relative is the absolute. There is no difference actually between the relative and absolute. They are they are two co- two sides of the same coin. So on a ruler, you'd see that you know on the front side is all the numerals and all the markings on a ruler. But if you flip it over, there's no markings, no distinctions. But it's the same ruler. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Zen practice is seeing those at the same time. It's it's about understanding that at the same time. Part of the problem is we get into is again the 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 dualities of well, if I see the universal, then relative truth is out the window. Or if I simply focus on subjective and relative truth, then universal truth must be out the window. But that's again dichotomous thinking, and dichotomous thinking is from a Zen Buddhist point of view, part of the problem. And I think I understand the pitfalls of dichotomous thinking, but could there be scenarios where a universal truth that someone holds makes the personal truth 
truth, whatever that is, impossible to hold, and vice versa. That it just wouldn't make sense. Could you give me an example, maybe? Just so I, I, I always work best. Yeah. I, I have a hard time because I'm not philosophically trained, by the way. I'm not, I, I didn't go to school sure. first. So I have a hard no, time. No, no, just, we'll just use the example that we used. You have a personal truth that there are an even number of chickens, but the universal truth is that there are an odd number of chickens. Those are, you can call it dichotomous thinking, mm-hmm. but. I'm trying to understand how both could be true. Well, yeah, I, I think it's pretty simple. Um, the experience that you're having of whatever your count is, say seven chickens, that's your experience, is true to you. If it's you, true to you. It's true to you. So it, it's, it's a truth it, are to Are things you. that are true to you true? To you they are, yes. But are they true? Are they factually correct? Yeah. Um, t- they're... Again, we, we're keep kind of going in circles here, but the, the, there is no, from a Zen point of view, there's no truth outside of human experience because— So everything is true. Yes. To one, to one degree or another, yes. It doesn't mean that we don't revise those truths as we get more information. Uh, but these, this, this, this kind of thing, um, these kind of philosophical debates, the kind we're having, which I'm not that skilled in, honestly— um, the Buddha had had this happen all the time, and many Zen masters over the years have had this happen. Um, Hopefully this is not a debate. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a conversation, philosophical right. conversation. What the Buddha always pointed us back to was, what's the objective of the question? Like, why are we asking these questions? That's the, what we want to understand, is what's the point? Because the Buddhist path is, again, simply about relieving suffering, and so we, when we sort of go down philosophical paths, we want to be clear about what the point is. Are, is that going to help us get to relieving suffering? You know, he said it's like a man who's been shot by an arrow, and the arrow is stuck in the man, and somebody comes over and says, hold still, I'll pull the arrow out. And the man says, no, um, don't pull it out yet. I, first, I need to know who shot the arrow. I need to know what feathers are on the end of the arrow. I need to know what wood it was made out of, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, he's in pain and suffering, and he's asking all these questions. So the Buddha said, this is like what he said is, it's called the second arrow problem. We are in pain and suffering, and yet we don't relieve that. We we, um, actually make it worse for ourselves by asking all these questions that don't get to the point of relieving suffering. So um, it's not that those, these questions that you're asking are unimportant to, to some people. It's just not the realm of Buddhist practice. It would be ask, like asking a doctor about how to ride a motorcycle. It just wouldn't be as relevant. You know, it's out, sort of outside of the expertise or outside of the realm of that doctor so the the Buddha was called a physician. Um, he was trying to. But if you are asking a doctor to relieve suffering, yeah, of a malady, and that's yes. hopefully what doctors do. Well, sometimes. What are they going to rely on to do that? Well, they're going to rely on their training. They're going to rely on their based training. on what? Well, their it's combination. Obviously, their schooling, their experience, their. Um, the research of other people. So, yeah. But wouldn't it be based on universal truths in the sense that how science works and how the human body works and how illnesses work and germ theory and you so, name yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, that would be a that would be a big component of it. The the additional part would be the human component. We all have been to the doctor and have felt um or at least I have and I know many people have felt that despite their knowledge base, that there's a sort of feeling that, uh, um, at least in modern medicine, that there's there's kind of like a, uh, I've got to get to my next patient. I get it. And they might not be good doctors, and they may not know certain things. And there might, they might have gaps in their knowledge, but 
does that, again, speak to the reality of how universal truths or science or would work in those scenarios? Yeah, but what one, yeah, to a certain extent, but what one patient needs, another patient may not need. So mm-hmm. the medicine has to suit the illness. Sure. And, and so that's But where... could there be science that would account for that too? Maybe, uh, you know, I imagine, um, I, what I, oh, I'm fascinated by these days, Mark, is AI and the learning that mm-hmm. happens in AI and how quickly it can learn and can see things. Uh, these mm-hmm. the algorithms can can learn things that hu- humans would otherwise take decades, if not centuries, to learn. Sure, uh, I'm fascinated by that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yes, there. You know, I'm I'm sure given enough information, you could account for all of that. Um, we don't have that right now, so there is a certain amount of um, intuition and a certain amount of um, going off of experience and uh, the experience of others that can be helpful. Uh, aside from just, you know, sort of scientific book knowledge and learning, you know, you to the the kind of care that comes through a, a physician when they hold the hand of a patient who's very ill, uh, we know um, that that can be very helpful and very healing. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that science? I guess ultimately you could say, well, science might begin to try to study that and account for that. Uh, but I would say that's traditionally wouldn't be the realm of science. That would be the realm of the heart. Now, I think what you're asking is, is that outside of science or is there some sort of universal? Yeah, sure. I mean, maybe again, given centuries and centuries more, maybe we'll begin to incorporate more of that into our knowledge base. And, um, you know, but, uh, some of that has just to be learned through direct experience, you know, um, not through uh, formulas or, you know, through uh, just through experience of working with patient after patient after patient. And you could say, well, that's science too, because you're just getting more information. You're revising the way you work with people and you're taking that into account. And uh, I think the denial, the problem would be is if you didn't take that into account and you just continued what you were doing without revising how you care for your patients. Last question. Okay. From your perspective, I think you might agree that we live in a difficult time. Yes. From a Zen Buddhist perspective, what could we be doing as a country that we're not doing to make things more and less contentious. Yeah, that's a good. That's a great question. I think the one of the most important things that we can do is recognize the divisiveness inside of ourselves. We tend to blame the other guy and say they're the one who is being divisive. They're the one who sees things wrong. They're the one who has the problem. From a Buddhist point of view, we want to recognize that. Suffering arises in our own minds. It comes from that very notion of the problem is out there. It's with the other person. It's with the other way, the party. That sets into motion a great amount of suffering in our own minds. Part of the solution would be to recognize our own role in things, in creating a divisive world, how we do that um, moment to moment. And the way we interact with people, the way we reinforce division, surrounding ourselves with only people that we agree with, not learning to tolerate and uh, stretch ourselves. All these things are practices in Buddhism. And I challenge my students all the time to, to put that into place in their own life, to recognize their own role. It's not a blaming kind of thing, but it is um, taking responsibility, that, that it's not somebody else's responsibility, it's my responsibility. Um, how that looks for each individual is going to be different, but inaction, that doesn't really help. You know, If anything, the reason that we practice Zen is not to un- understand some fundamental truth, it's to reduce suffering in the world. And so if any of my students... Um, if I see them, sort of experience them as just practicing meditation, but not actually enacting that in their life, not, not taking it out into the world and doing good with it, it's useless. And so that's what I think we need to do more and more. 
From the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina, I'm Mark Solomon, and you've just listened to another episode of Being Reasonable. Questions? Thoughts? Connect with us at beingreasonableshow.com. See you next week. <laughs>